Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. If you haven't seen it, there's a chance that your boss has, and that is this incredible Netflix deck that is 124 or so pages of pure gold outlining the principles behind Netflix. When it came out, it grabbed attention from leaders all over the world as leaders debated the principles in it, and it has been viewed millions and millions and millions and millions of times, although I think at least one of those millions was all by me. Well, Patty McCord helped write it. She was at Netflix for 14 years as the company's chief talent officer, and her book is a must-read. It's called Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. So many ideas in there, so many things you can apply to every organization of all sizes, no matter where you are in terms of growth of your business. But the earlier, the better, I will say that. Uh, Patty has now been promoting her book and talking all over the world, literally all over the world, uh, giving speeches and talking about culture and impact and people and organizations. And we are glad that she is still able to talk, despite all of those talks, to talk about it with us just a little bit. So Patty, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And you, you know, for all the things you, you've you done, and there are so many in terms of uh, your career and, and now even influencing organizations around the world and your time at Netflix, you, you wrote this, uh, helped write this document. Did you ever think that this document would be this uh, massive thing that it's become? Absolutely not. We wrote it, uh, so it took 10 years to write. So when a you know a young yeah a young CEO slaps it on the table and says we want to do this, I say, well you know, get patient because it took ten years <laughs> to write it. It was an internal document. We used it as an onboarding document, and whenever we'd hire uh, 10, 15 people, we'd get them in a room. Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix, and I, and we'd go through the deck. So this is a true story of the publishing of the culture deck. We were driving to work. Reed and I carpool together. And he said, Hey, I met this woman last night who's CEO of this really cool company. Um, that I think it's a really great idea. They're putting PowerPoint slides on the internet. And I said, that's a great idea. I wish I had thought of that. You know, I wonder what people are going to put out there. And he said, I published the deck this morning. <laughs> true, true story. <laughs> and I said, you did what? And he goes, why? What, what are you upset about? I'm like, oh my God, Reed, it's the worst. I mean, I never told you this, but graphically it is the ugliest document known to humankind. I mean, <laughs> I don't even think the fonts are the same, like chapter over chapter. And second of all, you know, you're going to scare away all, all of our applicants. And he said, only the ones we don't want. <laughs> Good answer. Well, and so I have to tell you the most impactful thing about publishing the document back in the day when um, we were still a relatively small company was it changed our interview process that day. Because now I wasn't interviewing you to see if you had five plus years progressive experience managing engineers on an internet platform. I was having a conversation with you about how you like to work and how much responsibility you were willing to take. And, you know, did you consider yourself an adult? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, I and it was really great. I mean, I the the conversations just got richer and to be honest with you, there were many times that that conversation would end with me saying, "You know, I don't think you'd like it very much here." But you seem like brilliant guy and you're really talented, but I I don't think we're the right place for you. And and that was a wonderful way to have us both, you know, have a respectful conversation, but not me hire you and you be miserable three months in. Right, which saves all kinds of time and money and energy and everything else. Yeah. It is. Now, now, Patty, did you feel like, I mean, was there anybody who ever appeared that had not seen the document after it was published? 
Uh, well, when they didn't, it was definitely a black mark. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we send it out when we'd say, you know, here's your interview schedule. Be sure you take a look yeah, at the culture dick before you come in. And then people would go, yeah, I didn't have time. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, the, I, that's the wonderful part about, um, you know, think about going back in time, how you used to have to do so much work researching a company or, or whoever you're going to talk to. And nowadays it's so easy to come prepared and have really good conversations. It is. It's, it's always very interesting to me though, people who don't show the preparation and they show up and they'll be perhaps saying, Patty, so, so tell me a little bit about your career. Where, where did you work or something? And you're thinking, are you kidding me? Really? Like, well, you-, <laughs> you know, let's, let's move forward now and um, talk about what I think, you know, work life is really like now and in the future, because this is really important. You know, there's a passive um, stance that many people take with interviewing, which is I'll just show up and you'll decide whether or not I'm right you know, whether or not I'm a good fit and then you'll give me an offer and I'll decide whether or not it's enough. (laughs) And that is not what your career is about. Your career is about your whole life and your whole journey. And, you know, I just did a talk yesterday to a whole bunch of, you know, 500 people. And I said, I've now realized that your job is to create an organization that's a great place to be from. And if you're a manager, your job is to create resume worthy experiences. Right. And so if you think about that's your job as an employer, how do I build the right team to get the stuff that we need to get done done with a bunch of people who are really passionate about and able to do it in the time frame I need them to do it? And that the other side of the coin is do is what this company needs someone to do, something I'm passionate about doing and really feel excited about the challenge that's before me. And when we look at that as, you know, this is a series of journeys that we're going to have through our whole lives, then we think about, quote, the process of interviewing really differently. It's not a passive experience on either side. I mean, you're, you know, you're making a pretty big commitment. So everybody Patty, should take it seriously. you have so much information right there. And it's amazing how much you just said uh, from passive to active and the responsibility of managers and how they think of it in a resume building way and a series of experiences and not being loyal necessarily to just one employer and understanding that and your brand. I mean, so many things in there to unpack. And and you also mentioned this be a great place to be from, which I know you told Reed Hastings uh, as your goal in the beginning is, is, is doing that. Um, Let's go back there. And then I want to touch on some other things you just talked about work of the future, but before work of the future, what are some ways to do that? You know, you know, making it a great place to be from, you know, when you think of a great place, what are the leaders there doing and how do they make it? So they're talking about the future more than they're being nostalgic about the past. So, um, I, one of the things I talk about to younger companies, startup companies is beware of the smoke of nostalgia. Remember how it used to be? Remember when we all knew each other? Remember when things, we felt like a family? Remember, right? Remember that party? It's like, you know, I remember when somebody said that to me. I don't, he says, an engineer in our company at Netflix said, I don't think management understands that things aren't the same and the culture's really changing and we're not like we used to be. And I said, you know, I am a vice president. I report to the CEO. So call me management. Right. Right. So we've had this conversation seven times. So part A of your sentence is just wrong. Management knows I've talked about it with you. I've talked about it with Reed. And and so, yes, things are changing. And I said, do you do you know what we want to be when we grow up? He said, well, I don't know, but it's not like it used to be. I'm like, we want to be a global corporation. This, and this young guy was like visibly shuddering. I'm like, and you don't have to be part of it. In fact, you'd hate it. You know, you're a 50 person startup guy. You can keep doing that forever. Really, you can. Here's the deal, though. Uh, startups only have three endings. You get bigger, you get smaller, you get eaten. Hmm. Smaller's death. 
So, you know, that's good. Right. So uh, there, of course, the culture is going to change. Of course, we're going to look forward to. So so the most important thing is to be really, really clear with people in the business about the context of the business. People often ask me about what do I think or, you know, the basic training and development curriculum for any company when they decide that training is important. I'm like day one for literally everyone. Teach them how to read a P&L a profit and loss stage, teach them how you make money. And if you don't, if you're a nonprofit, like your business, teach them what impact you make and how you're going to do it and what your time frame is and what goodness looks like. Be very right. explicit, right? The, the thing that a lot of people don't do very well now that I've been snooping around out there for the last eight years, uh, people don't put time frames on things very well. So when a leader sits, stands up in front of the company or the team and says, you know, some our, my vision is that we're going to be X, you know, someday, then, you know, half of the audience thinks you mean next Thursday <laughs> and the other half thinks you need, mean five years. Ten years. Yeah, right. right. So yeah. it's real. I, I recommend that people try and articulate six months out. Because I think that that's really all you can be sure of, right? I'm not a huge fan of five and 10 year planning because you'll just be wrong, yeah, right? The world's changing so the fast. The world's changing so fast. But, you know, six months is a pretty tight frame, right? And so when you can break things into those kind of chunks, then it's easier for people. And the other thing I say to people is make that vision, make that direction setting, make that context so clear you can count it on one hand, you know, grow revenue, whatever it is, three or four things that are really, really important so that when everybody comes to work in the morning, they go, oh, I got this idea. This would be so cool if we, wait a minute, does it enhance globalization? Does it grow revenue? Does it, you know, make, make customer satisfaction go up four points? Oh, well, maybe I'll set that idea aside and work on this. Right? Absolutely. So powerful. the more context you can give people, the more they're able to operate with freedom and make the right choices. Yeah, Patty, you're, you're talking about work of the future and you look out six months and that's great from a leadership perspective. Uh, uh, the employees who are also looking to prepare for you know, they may be looking out a few years and, and thinking, oh, no, you know, AI, machine learning, robots, all of these things are going to change my job. What do I do? How do how do you encourage them to look at six month blocks and and really work on their skills for what they're going to need for the future? Well, I encourage them to talk to management about exactly that. Right. So I understand that, you know, we're going to have a big push for AI next year and I feel like I'm underprepared tell me honestly what it would take for me to get there. And I'll give you a Netflix example. We realized that we we're going to be a third of the U.S. internet bandwidth in like nine months. Like It was shocking when we realized like, oh my God, this could happen like next year. Oh my God, what That's do we right. do? Right. And at the time we had a data center and we sat down with our IT guys and we said, look, we think this needs to be cloud-based and we need to make it happen and we need to make it happen soon. And the IT folks on our team who are brilliant, wonderful people said, no worries. Why don't you two go exec something? We'll build a cloud. And I looked at this group of people and I said, you know, if there's anybody on earth that could do this, it's probably you, but not in nine months. There's not a single person in the room that has any experience with this, right? So we have to have a team that's at least ahead of us <laughs> and we're at ground zero, right? And so I could have, so somebody would say, but I really want to do this. I'm like, I, I absolutely think you should do this. I'm not sure the time frame is going to work for you. We got nine, nine months to figure it out, right? And so I think you can have really open and honest conversations about people. And then they might realize, wow, what I need to do is be at a company that's working, already working on cloud-based computing on a team there where I can bring my skills up to speed so that I can do that in the future. So sometimes you can get that development in the company that you're at, and sometimes you don't. But, but you can have really straightforward conversations about that, right? Your manager also might say, yeah, I think we can do it, but man, you, you're going to <laughs> you're gonna have to do some work here, buddy. And you st I, 
I love your directness and clarity that you offer with people. And I think so many times people, whether in HR, leadership, management, they don't um, say what it is. You know, put it, I'm, I'm a big about just put it on the table. Let's talk about it. That way we can solve it. And I think that's. Yeah. I mean, I think people can hear anything if it's true. It's the spin that makes them crazy. And it not only makes them crazy, it makes them cynical. Right. Because when you say, you know, I think you're going to be fine. You're going to be, everything's going to be fine. And I'm, you know, you're on the layoff list. (laughs) And then, then, then it happens to you. You feel like a victim and you feel, um, you, you just feel like done to. Well, yeah, and you were, and, and you were robbed of the opportunity of honesty and preparation for what could occur and, and really considering multiple options. Yeah. I mean, I go even further when I talk to women's groups, I say, look, when your company does an employment engagement survey employee engagement survey. They didn't put a ring on it. <laughs> and, and you interviewing with another firm is not cheating on your husband. You should interview pretty regularly because you'll find out what you're worth. And you'll also see if the grass is greener. When people were unhappy, I very often said, you know what you need to do? You need to go interview somewhere. You need to tell a stranger what you want. Because you've been here so long, it's so hard not to be inside of our bubble. Right. So, and, and, uh, and people, the first time Reed found out, I did, he's like, are you crazy? Did you, did you just tell her to go interview somewhere else? I'm like, yeah, she's unhappy. Right. So she thinks it's better out there. So let her go find out what's wrong with that. Right. And half of the time people would come back and go, huh. Okay. That's interesting. That, that I learned a lot. I learned that I don't want to go. One of the things that I've noticed about the way you are, the way you're saying this, and even as you're explaining the story, this concept from your book, it's really, you, you talk about it there, you call it radical honesty. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are can be really good at the radical honesty, but then they do it with rudeness. And you do the radical honesty, but with honesty and grace. How do you train people, help people, guide people to not cross that line of, we're going to be radically honest and and be direct, but we're also not going to be rude. You have to create trust by, by demonstrating that the reason for your radical honesty is both the company and the person's best interest. It has to be selfless, right? The conversations that you and I have just had during this interview are conversations where I'm talking to somebody about doing the right thing either for their career or for the company that I work at. And it's very clear why I'm having that conversation. I'm not having the conversation because I don't like you, right? Or that I want to make you feel bad. I want to make you feel better. I want you to be better. I want it to be amazing. You know, when I talked to, I just did a talk not too long ago with a group of CEOs. And I said, you know, it's your job to field the team that will win. And if you can't achieve what your organization's potential is because you've got the wrong team, right, you're going to miss that opportunity because the wrong people are in the room. You own that, right? And so that, when you talk about it that way with people, they understand why you're saying the things you are, you got, you want to be successful. That's your job. So I think it's this, it's, and here's the other thing, you know why I'm good at it? I practice, you know, it's like, you've done it a lot. Yeah. I've done it a lot. And so can you, right. You can just have a part of it is frequency. It's why I rail against the annual performance review so much. It's like, really? You know, the only time you give somebody feedback is once a year. Name some any other skill you have that you're really great at that you do once a year. It's awful. It's awful, awful right? So, but if you have honest conversations with people on a regular basis and a regular rhythm, then it's not a big deal. And it shouldn't be surprising. No, but both sides where I can say, look, you you know, you made a commitment that you would get this done and, you know, it's been six weeks. What the hell? And you say to me, excuse me, but 
you were going to have a conversation with that other person and pave the way for me. And what the hell? I'm like, right. And then I can go, oh, God, what a day. Oh, let's fix this and fix it. Right. And, and at timely intervals that you can. I know I, we all love to rail against that. And we got rid of it in our organization in favor of a, a sheet of questions just to encourage regular dialogue and conversation. Yeah, it's a great idea. I mean, there's lots and lots of ways to schedule regular feedback. The, the dilemma with the annual performance review, it, from my perspective, is HR and management and employees all have really mixed definitions of why we do it. Is it a compensation review? Is it a performance review? Is it a feedback mechanism? Because most annual performance reviews that are attached to compensation really suck at all three of those things. <laughs> I'm, right? I mean, talk about radical honesty. Yes, they do. They do. And everybody hates it. And the reason why everybody hates it is because they're not really sure why it is we do it and they don't really know what the ground rules are. And it's not a, and it's not really straightforward, you know, like, I mean, I, we could go on forever, but I mean, just the idea of pay for performance with the incredible structures that we have, you know, it's not true. Pay is market-based. You're worth what somebody will pay you somewhere. That's it. It really is that, that simple. And so if your market is moving really rapidly and you have, you know, I coached a company that said, um, they sent me over the comp thing and I said, oh, I see you've chosen to mark your base pay in the 65th percentile. And the person said, yes, uh, I talked to my CFO and he believes that's the right budget number. I'm like, okay, can I be one of your employees? Sure. Uh, who gets the other 35%? <laughs> she says, well, that's not what percentile means. I'm like, I know that. And you know that. And that makes two of us. <laughs> That's good. And you're going to base it on data, right? Absolutely. We're going to do employee survey data. I'm like, so you're going to ex- you're going to tell people that you're basing it on data from other companies that you gathered that was gathered by a survey organization over the last year. So you're using data that's a year old. <laughs> and I said, and "You're going to show them the survey?" "Oh, no, 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 that's not done." I'm like, "Really?" you're going to use data to figure out my pay, but I don't get to see it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, so, so the underlying principle to how I look at these things is that I, I stopped looking at them as, um, as activities that we do policies and processes that we do because they're best practices, which means either everybody else does them or we've all done it that way. And what, and my big, you know, change of mindset occurred when I started looking at all the things that I was responsible for as a product, right? Okay. The annual performance review, what's the purpose of this? Right. What's what? What is the end result? What's the product I want to deliver? Right. And how will I know and measure whether or not this product actually achieves its objective? So that's where I went. Oh well, (laughs) if I want it to be a compensation system that's tied to performance, but I'm in the middle of a booming market in the Silicon Valley, none of it makes sense. Right. Right. And right. and when I back to my conversation when I talk with women, I say, look, you know, here's the deal. Nobody's ever told you this. If you join a firm and you're and you accept a job that's maybe twenty percent under where you're worth, but you really like the company, really like the people, and you know that you're gonna knock the ball out of the park and you do and your annual performance review comes up and you are so amazing. They have a six and a half percent merit increase budget and they give you fourteen. And your HR person, your manager, everybody says, I can't believe you got 2x the raise. You're incredible. You're still under market by 6%. Compounded. You'll never catch up. Unless you leave, go somewhere else exactly. and come back. Exactly. Yeah, and exactly. I and I tell them, if you're sitting around five years waiting for them to realize that they're not paying you what they're worth, they're never going to. Most companies don't do that. They don't have an adjustment. Most. 
Yeah, yeah. When I talk to compensation people, I just <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm ruthless. <laughs> like yeah. the doors are closed. It's just us. Go home, write some checks, fix equal pay. Seriously, yeah. no, I'm, 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 that's true. Who who are you waiting to? It's sophisticated enough that we actually do market adjustments and yeah, and look at you know, um, your the real compensation data for your organization is in recruiting. Yes, you see the real market. Yeah, that's the real market. And you know what I used to do was I would just pick a different part of the organization every quarter, and then sit down with my staffing team and say, you know, or I'd pick a place where we were doing a lot of hiring, and say, what are we seeing? Right? Are we hiring much more senior people than we have before? So that's why the salaries are higher. Or are we really making sure that we're not, you know, the employees that we have may have become more valuable because they've been here? <laughs> so we certainly don't want them to leave for money when we love them and they love us. Patty, you're in a booming market, hot technology, hot company. Have you ever seen it flipped the other way where? retention is so high that maybe you're over market. Absolutely. I, I've absolutely seen that. The other thing I've seen is, um, you know, people, they get the startup thing that, um, you know, everybody sacrifices for equity and we're all going to get rich someday. So we don't really need to pay people a lot of money. And then the business takes off and they don't want anybody to leave because they're really focused on retention. And they say, well, we could, we want to hire good people or we want to hire people with more experience who are more expensive, but we can't afford it because it'll screw all the people that are here that are paid less. <laughs> right. It's the, the circular logic and it's almost always enforced by HR and HR policies. Right. Well, you know what? We'd screw internal equity. And so I used to just turn it into a math problem. Okay, if we're hiring this person from outside of the organization who's making twice as much as the other five people on the team, tell me what value add they're going to give us in the first month. Oh, my God, they know stuff that nobody on the team knows. It'd be really incredible. They're amazing. I mean, seriously, this, it's like we, wouldn't, we would not be able to figure out what this person's bringing to the table. I'm like, okay, great. But we can't do it because everybody else is making half as much, and I'm worried that they might find out. Okay, so the response to that is they will. People talk about their salaries all the time. It's really foolish to think that they don't. So that's a, that's a dumb that's right. concept in the first place. And second of all, I said, so which one of the members of your current team gets to take this person's place when they leave? Oh, nope. Mm. Nobody's qualified to do what she knows how to do. I'm like, okay, so that she might be worth twice as much, right? Well, maybe, but I still can't afford it. I'm like, uh-huh, how about those two people that, let's use math. Let's say this person can come in and create a 2x value add. What about the two people on the team that you and I have been talking about for a year who are kind of at 0.5, but we're paying a 1.0 salary? Gets their attention. That's the, the money's in front of you. It's not money. Yes. It's the right team. Right. And so that's a hard thing for companies to grasp. Right. You can spend money on on salaries for people who really move your business forward by not dragging the people who maybe are done. It also highlights if you bring someone in with those high expectations and they miss them and they're not delivering that value that you have, it goes back to you having a radically honest conversation with that person of what you need and what you hired and what was expected. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, you also let them go, which you've had to do many times. And you've had periods at Netflix where you had uh, significant reductions and redoing the whole workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it does, does reinforce that when someone leaves something else that you've talked about uh, quite a bit, when someone does leave on both sides, how does someone leave a company well? Well, you know, if I could rewrite the world, <laughs> I would just start with changing all the language about people leaving. Like, I hate the word fired. Like, there's no weapons involved. There's no blood. And the, you know, and the, uh, the emotion that's associated with, quote, getting fired is shame. 
you know, it's so built into society. And the truth is, uh, you know, I did a the, the CEO talk. I said, a thousand CEOs in the room. I said, raise your hand if you're still in the job that you had when you graduated from the university. Of course, zero hands went up. I'm like, raise your hand if you think retention is a really critical thing to measure in your company. How many? A thousand hands went hands up, right? Up. I'm like, so that doesn't seem a little bit cynical to you. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Really? So, you know, I think how we do it well on both sides is for one, you know, the most important thing that all of us talk about, but none of us do very well is you can't be surprised. Right. My two rules of termination were you can't be surprised and you have to keep your dignity. Right. So you don't you don't wait. And this is really hard to teach managers how to do. I'm like, you need to not wait until you hate them to break up. Because by the time you hate them to break up, they hate you too. <laughs> That's so good. It is not an easy thing to teach. It isn't. But, you know, you've got to step back and realize why things don't work out. So you talked about one earlier, which is what if you hire somebody and you have very high expectations for them and it turns out you just made the wrong hire. They just can't do it, right? For whatever reason, Um, they don't have the skills to do what you hired them to do. Well, whatever the reason, it's your fault. You hired them, right? So in that circumstance, that is solely your responsibility. And the thing, the way to fix that in the future is to be able to say to somebody, I'm kind of taking a chance on you, just so you know. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think you can do it, but I'm not 100% sure. So let's both make sure that we go into this with our eyes open. And if it doesn't work, I'm, you know, the reason I'm hiring you is you think you can do it. But honestly, I don't really know what the problem is to solve. That also happens a lot, especially you know when companies moving fast. It's like, you're breathing. Let's do it. <laughs> Right. Right? And then you realize, oh, well, that's breathing they've got down. It's accounts payable that they don't know how to do. Right. Uh, Oops. So that that's wrong. And and when you do that, that's no harm, no foul. That's a big fat severance. That's a I made a terrible mistake. Let's figure out how you're going to get a job somewhere else. Okay. Then help you out. Yeah. Move to the next. Then what I've seen in the 30 years I've been doing this is a couple of things happen. One of them is the business changes, right? I'm no longer at Netflix because Netflix is a global content producing organization. The bulk of what happens in Netflix right now happens in Hollywood. I'm a Silicon Valley tech girl. I'm the wrong fit, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's just so so the business changes and that can happen in almost every company or the technology changes right? We were a B2B enterprise software company, and we realized our future is mobile apps. Those are two completely different skill sets. And the third thing that happens that I've seen over and over again is you hire somebody to do something, and they do it, and then it's done. And then we say, oh, you you spent the last four years building this incredible product. Could you maintain it now? Right. And it's not what they want to do. No, it's not their skill set. No, no, no. It's a whole different person that says, oh, wow, now I'm going to make it, you know, 0.0004% better every day <laughs> instead of I'm going to make it function. Those are two different people. And so I think that we should be able to say, oh, man, I, you've made such a contribution. You must be so proud of yourself. What What's next? I'm not sure we've got anything that's going to be exciting enough for you. What do you think? Putting it on them to have that accountability. It's their, it's their career. That's right. That's right. Right. And if, Patty, we, if about- we can't give it to them, like, you know, the only thing I've got for you is like maintaining this. And I think you're going to hate that. And when you hate it, you're going to be unhappy. And then other people are going to be unhappy because I'm like, so that's, that's a lose, lose. So I'm going to surface this for you long before you surface it. We're, you know, I see it coming. <laughs> so, so what about differentiation as an employee? So you're, you're in the boardroom, you're talking about, with the leadership team of, of the organization and Inevitably, it comes to talking about talent and somebody who stand out and really just knocking it out of the park, doing some great work. What are some of the qualities that hits the the 
the patty list of, you know, these, these are a few qualities that make you stand out or a few things to do to stand out as an employee? Uh, you have a track record of accomplishing great things, uh, relatively selflessly. So you have a track record of doing things that make the customer or the client inordinately happy and moving the business. That's thing one. Thing two is people want to work with you. They're excited about doing things with you, right? You, um, you have a way to inspire the people around you to want to do their best work. Um, and that doesn't have to be assertive, aggressive, and outgoing. I've seen a lot of people be incredibly influential quietly, right? Because they have a reputation for just having great ideas or really executing well or taking a really complex problem and making it, you know, digestible for people so that they can understand it and work on it. Uh, and I think the quality of leadership over the years that I've now able to articulate better than I used to is, it's not being a great communicator is not just being able to talk to people. It's being able to hear them. Listening is a really, really good skill. Right. Absolutely. And so that's the, that's the other thing I look for. Uh, you know, sometimes the person is always right and that's all we ever hear from them. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know how they're always amazing, right? And I and they don't give credit to anybody else, and they don't have followership because mostly because they just don't listen very well. Mm. And, and it's not it's not going to build uh, build the number two of of having people rally to them and be motivated and inspired because they're not feeling listened to. Yeah, yeah, and and I but it's but there's the underlying really important motivation is that it's on behalf of the customer or the client or the product, not for themselves. The, the self, I can't emphasize how important selflessness is in leadership. You know, people talk about it as servant leadership. I mean, there's a lot of different catchphrases around it, but it's about doing the right thing for the business and the customer. And that's why you have the conversations you have. That's why you have debates. That's why you're willing to try stuff that might not work. Because so good, you know, so good. results, people, you results, listening. people listening. Yeah. And, you know, I, like great leaders are also brave. There's lots of different kinds of bravery, but it's the, you know, sucking it up and being willing to say, I actually just need to say this. I think this is a really terrible idea. And when you right. do that, you have to say, comma, here's the reason why, <laughs> comma, comma, and I here, like and here's what I think would work better. Right. My, my catchphrase is have an opinion, take a stand and be right. Most of the time, you don't have to be right all the time when you make stuff up. But you can't be wrong all the time either. But I don't care about your opinion unless you're willing to take a stand. That's great. So I want to I want to just turn Patty to one one last area that intrigues me because you've said that companies don't exist to create happy employees, which I love. And you're going back to the the reason you're here for customers and results, and uh, and they, that's not why companies exist. But as you as you look at organizations, travel around the world, look at variety of HR leaders, CEOs, all the people that you've met with, and you're looking at all these employee surveys, what is it that makes employees happy? And how do leaders align their goals to uh, to whatever that is that makes employees happy in the in the best way? Does that make sense? Yeah, although. I guess I would have a little problem with leaders should align their goals with employee happiness. Um, I knew you would. That's why I went <laughs> because it was a loaded that's, question. That's not a goal. <laughs> I mean, a successful business is the goal, or you know, an incredible, impactful nonprofit is the goal, or you know, a consulting service where clients are you know keep coming back is the goal. It, none of it is about employee. Here's the reason why I say this: it's just my observation. I, I, so I, I consulted with a, a startup here in San Francisco, and the HR department was called People Happiness. She's I just threw up a little in my mouth, but um, that was this people happiness team. And I met with somebody and I said, tell me what it is you do. What's your job? 
my job is to make employees really happy. I'm like, great. Okay, well, that's not a job, but what, why? Why do you exist? Well, uh, because if they're not happy, they're going to walk out the door and they're going to walk down the street and they're going to leave us for more money and better beer. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of held her little hands in mine and said, if someone leaves you for better beer, what I want you to say to them is goodbye. Now, Patty, I have to object to that because you should at least say share it. I told, I said, and I told her, and I said, and then find out when happy hour is and go there, okay, right? Because they got better good. beer. And but what I said to her was this: I said, "Look, I know that you know five people in the organization that are outstanding people. Everybody knows, you know, everybody knows who's really great, who has a reputation for getting incredible stuff done around here. So I want you to meet with five of them." Uh, and say to them, tell me about something that you did here that you're incredibly proud of or that you feel like made an impact to our business or to our customer, right? You have a reputation for do that. So tell me what, what one of those situations was for you. Tell me that story. And I said to her, every single story will be about something that was hard right? It's going to be the, oh God, we didn't think we could do it, but we all pulled together and we just, it was incredible. Or I was so scared it would fail and it didn't. Or, um, you know, we were, we just like this one person came in at the end and I made all the difference in the world. Because when you go home at night and you tell your partner or your pet, it was a great day at work today. It was always because you did something incredible. Right. You might go home and go, well, we switch craft beers and the new one is really great, but you won't do it with the passion that you have when you've accomplished something. So, I mean, that's the thing we do at work that we don't really do in much of the rest of our lives. Come together with other people and accomplish something. So, and, and it does make you happier. You, you, you know, it puts a longer term shot on it in terms of you may have a day where it's really, really hard and you're quote, not happy, but eventually when you achieve this thing that was hard, that seemingly maybe have been impossible, like, you know, a third of the internet and building a cloud-based system, you, you do end up. Yeah. Feeling- and, the, you know, my, my observation of the employees that are really unhappy are usually the people that are just dialing it in. Okay, I come to work and I do my job and then I go home and then I go sleep and I come to work and I do my job. Right. When it, that's, sure. that's sort of the low burner insidious unhappiness. That, and that makes the bosses unhappy. Oh, it makes everybody. I, you know, my theory is people kind of fall into thirds. A third of your employees think pretty great. The management seems to be pretty smart. I'm loving what I do. Um, the people I work with are terrific and I'm getting a lot done. Oh, yay. And then there's a potential of a third of people who say, you know, management will screw you if you don't watch out. You better, you know, that's, I don't think they're wrong. I'm not happy. And then, and then, if you, and the middle third follows whoever gets the most attention. So, oh, that's, that's a good way to say if it. you're spending all your time trying to make that grousing, unhappy third happy instead of finding out those happy people and saying, would you want more fun stuff to do? <laughs> Here's your reward and getting rid of those unhappy people. Because you know why people are unhappy at work? Because they're not doing stuff they love to do. So you have to find that or they have to move on? My, I, ca- I call it my algorithm for success. I, I stole the word algorithm from my engineers. It goes like this. Is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something this company needs someone to be great at. Oh, I love that. That is so powerful. Can you say that again? Is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something this company needs someone to be great at. I love that in so many ways, especially the ending mm-hmm. because, about the company needing because, it. Because sometimes people will be yeah. passionate, but you don't need it. Yeah. Oh, take my builder, right? Wow, you did such a great job doing that. We don't need you to do that anymore. We'd like you to mm, solve this spreadsheet problem. (laughs) I remember this, you know, one time I said, good grief to this person's manager. I'm like, John is cranky. 
I mean, I really, seriously, what this, is this guy working on that's making him so unhappy? Well, actually, we're done with coding on that project. So I have him working on spreadsheets to track, you know, stuff. I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> You're having a software developer do spreadsheets? He's like, yeah, he can do it, you know, and I don't want him to, like, you know, I want to lose him. Are <laughs> you? You're losing him. <laughs> like, oh my, no, no. And for not only is it a horrible thing for him, clearly, but you want somebody who wakes up in the morning and goes, macros. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't wait. I'm going to make this spreadsheet so amazing. There are people like that, Patty. They get really I know they are, and I love them. I mean, and that's what makes us all tick is that we all, you know, that's diversity of thought. That's diversity of experience. That's diversity of contribution. And so so to, to touch on that, when you talk about hiring people to solve particular problems and making sure that you're building teams of people that love solving those problems in that time frame, then you're going to be open to lots of different ways of doing it and lots of different people who can. Because what we tend to do is say, you know, I'm going to hire somebody smart, good decision maker, quick on their feet really able to take the lead and move things forward. Somebody <laughs> just like me, maybe me five years ago, because I don't want him to be threatening. And that's who we hire. That's who we hire. That's who we hire. Then we got a whole team full of yous. And then we the wonder same. why nobody has a new idea. No power, no power in that. Yeah. It's the powers in the different ideas and the, Rigorous debate, which is another one of your uh, topics and, and everything else. Well, it, so incredible, far reaching. I knew our conversation would be, and I love what you're saying about happiness. And I know many people uh, running marathons and they're never happy at mile 17 and yet uh, they get happy. At yeah, the end. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. what I love about my algorithm is that you can apply it to the, to the company side and to yourself. Right? Why am I unhappy? Why? What's going on? Is it because is a, I'm not doing great? Outcome. You know, I'm not actually. I'm doing this job and I'm not loving it. What is it about it? Right? That's making but, me feel that thing, way. The other thing about that, Patty, is I, I've realized, and and I think th this is not generational per se. Though I have to say, I've had more of these conversations with some in the in the younger generation my daughter mm -hmm. included mm -hmm. is there are times there may be a season when you have to power through something that you're doing spreadsheets mm -hmm. you know, for some mm -hmm. reason for a month mm -hmm. uh, you know everything can't be perfectly aligned to exactly uh where you are every minute of the day mm -hmm. and yet you have to look at your overarching maybe you look at it in six month blocks or even six yeah, weeks. Yeah, I think so. And I think particularly early in your career, um, you don't really know the solution to the algorithm. You don't really know what it is that you love to do. And part of how you learn what that is, is you do stuff and you realize, I do not love this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But you don't, but you, you, you don't know. I mean, I remember back in the day. Uh, okay. So I'll leave it with one last story about my son. He's graduated from high school, he says to me, I, I need to talk to you about something, mom. I'm like, okay. He goes, mom, I, I want to tell you that as you know, I'm going to college. I said, yes, I know. I wrote the check. Um, what is it, dear? He's like, I need to tell you, I'm not going to be a software engineer. And I said, okay. He goes, well, everybody knows you like them best. And I said, I do. I mean, I love them a lot, but to be honest, you wouldn't be that good at it. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, oh, you know, you never looked at the HTML code under your Facebook page. You know, you didn't play Halo till you puked. You, you know, you didn't put together a million people. You know, you didn't take the toaster apart, right? So I, you know, you really, I don't know that that's the right thing. He goes, well, I'm, you know, at the top of my class in calculus, I'm really good at math. I could be an, an engineer. I'm like, I didn't say you couldn't. I'm just saying, I don't know if that's what you'd really love to do. Right. And those were in those were the days when, you know, you either were a developer or you were right. We had very strict categories of what software engineering was. 
And um, he's now a security engineer. And what he's done is become an engineer to solve a particular type of problem that he's really, really good at. He's really good at pattern recognition, right? And so, but he didn't know that until he did a whole bunch of other things. Like at one point I'm like, how did you get that job? He's like, well, I kept seeing this pattern. So I wrote a little query. I'm like, really? You're writing queries? He's like, yeah, and I'm good at it. Because he, that, that's what gave him the drive. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I, that when I used great. to interview engineers, I would tell them that story and I would say, what was it for you? And they all could tell me. They could all, yeah, that, you know, that makes it. And that's how you learn. That's how you yeah, learn. That's the power. Yeah. Power. So, power. so I, I refuse to say millennial because, you know, I also have one of those, but he's now 30 and has a child. So, you know, millennials grow up. You're a millennial. I was, it was a while back, but early in your career is a different phase than later in your career. So very true. Yeah, And so that's, it's important to do that. It's important to have that experience where you go, (laughs) (laughs) but not, not today. We'll, we'll, we'll push that aside. Well, thank you, Patty. I, I think everyone hears, why I knew I just love to talk to you. I love your directness. You said before we started, it's because you're a Texas girl. I can see that mm-hmm. the uh, the power that you bring from that directness with kindness and that mix is so powerful. And I hope everyone gets this copy of your book, Powerful: Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. It is full of all of these principles, so many stories, and. I guarantee no matter what field you're in, you're going to walk away with a number of ideas and applications, and you're going to have a few aha moments where you're like, oh, I don't do that so well. And you'll have others where you go, wow, I'm pretty good at that, all because of reading this book. So Patty, thank you so much for writing it and for sharing some of your thoughts with us and for powering uh, organizations around the world with your uh, provocative uh, ideas around leadership and building cultures and all the things that you're talking uh, about. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, Don't settle for the mediocre, always aim higher.